0: Hey, sippin' studiers. If you're looking for a way to get more positive things going into your life, I'd encourage you to check out our friends at Christian Living Magazine. You can find out everything you need at Mm christianlivingmag.com. Well, hey, good morning, everybody. Good morning, good morning. Well, this is gonna be kind of a bigger, a bigger lesson in that it's it's a really one, it's a really powerful lesson, I think. But two, it's just it is something that everybody considers, everybody talks about. It can be considered one of those hot button topic lessons. And we're, we're looking at, well, first of all, we're looking at the fourth lesson that we're doing here in the book of Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible, which is why it's so big. This is that foundational starting point of all of scriptural understanding. We're getting into chapter three, and we're going to do the entirety of chapter three, which is a lot. It's actually a lot. It's only 24 verses, but there's a lot that happens inside of these 24 verses. So we might run just a smidge long. I'm going to try my best not to run long, but we might run just a smidge longer than normal because there is so much that happens in this, and it is such a big piece in understanding our faith, in understanding traditions, and where things move forward. This is discussing the fall of man. This is discussing what many would consider the original sin. Now, I would debate that, whether this was the original sin or not. This is the original starting point of why things went downhill between man and God. So let's dig into it. We are looking at Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 24, so the entire chapter. Let's go ahead and do this in the English Standard Version. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me She gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Sorry, if you're hearing some motorcycles going on in the background, it's, I mean, I don't know that it's warm enough for motorcycles. It's 34 degrees outside, 34 Fahrenheit. So it's what, like 0.5 degrees Celsius or something like that. So it's, it's basically freezing, but. People around here are, are getting their motorcycles ready, ready for spring rides, so getting motorcycle action today. Anywho, this breaks up into six basic sections here. First of all, we're going to see verses 1 to 7, the serpent and the fruit, 8 to 13, excuses, 14 to 15, addressing to the serpent, 16 to the woman, 17 to 19 to the man, and then 20 to 24, it shifts gears nearly completely and... We almost get a, a separate section here as like one of us. And that's gonna be something we are gonna discuss for a minute. But let's take a look at this. But before we really dig in to the actual word just directly itself, let's let's discuss some key points here, just simply about the serpent, because you you hear people all the time, well, the devil was in Genesis. Well, the term devil's never in Genesis. In fact, the term Satan, as we think of it as a proper noun, is actually not in the New, in the Old Testament at all. We just don't see it. And so when people get on forums, when people discuss things online, when you're talking with other people, sometimes you're going to get people who are going to say, well, that's never in there. You guys are making the whole thing up. And you can tell it's all made up because it was never in the Old Testament at all. So you Christians have just made this up and blown things out of proportion. And your belief is something that is completely different. So let's take a moment to stop and discuss this. If that's a new revelation to you and you've never, you know, come across that, great, you're going to learn something completely new today. If that is something that you have come across and you've wondered about, great, you're going to learn something new today. Probably, I hope anyway. So let's go over this. First of all, the serpent. This is not. This is kind of a debating point, and there's theology on both sides of this. I just want to make this pretty clear. This is a metaphor, right? This, this is, you know, I, I know some people are going to stop and say, well, wait a minute. You said that you take the original creation story as a literal six-day event, you know, seventh day if you count the rest, but a literal six-day creation, and I do. And and here's why. Our science constantly changes. When my parents were in school, the, the earth was millions of years old. When I was in school, there were debates between the earth being millions and billions of years old. And now that my kids are in school, the years the earth is trillions of years old. So, and these are all being, been taught as just straight up facts. So the science changes. And so for me, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter if the earth was created in six literal days And if it was created 6,000 years ago, 6 million years ago, billion years ago, trillion years ago, the, the, the moral of the story, the whole essence of that story is God's the one who did the creating. God created it. It's here because God did it. It's not here because there was nothing and nothing magically exploded and now there's everything, right? That's the moral of the story. That's the whole point of that story. And so for me... It makes more sense to hold consistency and say, God did the creating, and if God wants to tell a story that this is how he created it, I think that's probably closer to how it was actually created than something that we say is science and settled that constantly changes. So to me, that makes sense. Whereas here, we, we need to recognize that metaphor is woven throughout scripture all over the place, and we miss a lot of it because... We are so far removed from the culture. Not only are we removed by timeline and by language, but we're also removed by our society is a completely different style of society than what was around then and and really there in the Near East. You get into different types of cultures and things that are just plainly understood in that society type. So a community-based society rather than an individualistic society based society. We're missing things there. There's there's just so many different nuance elements that we miss that people in different cultures are going to understand, but they're still going to miss things because the time element, the language element, everything else. We just need to understand that there is metaphor woven throughout scripture all over the place. This right here is a piece of that. This is kind of a, a metaphor meant for teaching and teaching, hey, this is, this is, we're separated from God, right? God created and God did the creating and we're all here and everything that's here is here because God did the creating. But there's a separation between man and God. Now there's there's also truth that gets woven into these stories, right? And so that's why I think it's important that we take this and we don't just sit there and say, oh, it's a metaphor. You can write it off, it's no big deal. No, it's a very big deal. There's truth that's woven into metaphor. These things are stories that are told for a reason and there's a lot of truth that is woven inside of it. There's teaching elements that's woven inside of these. So we need to look at this and and take some of it as fact and take some of it as not fact. You know, we just need to know where where does where do we draw that line? And that's why we're here. That's why we do things like this is so that we can study this and have a better understanding of what's really going on. Now, The the theology that's different here is some people will take this and say, this is a serpent. And because of this, they want to go straight literal and say, hey, this is also a teaching of zoology and serpents or snakes, which the the word here is Naha or Nahas. And it literally is just a, a general term for venomous snakes. And they're going to say, well, it had legs at one point. And then because of this, God cursed it and it no longer has legs. No, no, no this is not a zoology lesson, okay? This is not something talking about how a snake was different before the fall and then after the fall, it's now something that just winds on the ground. That is, and that's not true. This is a, that is a metaphor, okay? This is used to discuss and describe and to create representations so that we can remember things going forward, okay? It's not a zoology lesson on how snakes changed. Now, while the serpent is not directly called Satan Here or the devil here. Again, we don't see that. We don't see that in the Old Testament really at all. If we are going to link the Bible together and we are going to have a realistic view of the Bible and hold it together as solid canon and it's accurate and it's good for reproof and it's good for learning and it's good for our faith and it really is something that is God-breathed and is for people, John links the serpent here in Genesis with the end times. And we see that, you can see a great point of that in Revelation twelve nine, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. Now, hold on. Remember, this isn't just a modern day translation, a modern day thing to where people are considering the devil or Satan as a single entity. This was a cultural thing that was already understood and already underway, and it happened during the Jewish time, okay? This happened before Christianity, and it's something that's just accepted and is now being talked about here because this is now theology. This is how this goes, okay? So we're going to continue on. Who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world, of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So why isn't the, the serpent here in Genesis clearly named Satan or the devil. Well, the reason for that is in the Old Testament, in Hebrew, Satan actually should not ever really be capitalized. In fact, when you get into the language, the language actually says Ha-Satan. Now, Ha is an article in the language, right? So just like in English, and, and Hebrew is very much like English in this, It doesn't tolerate, it doesn't allow for that kind of an article with a proper noun. So I am not the Drew, right? We got Vicky and Patty on here today. You are not the Vicky. You are not the Patty. You are Vicky. You are Patty. I am Drew. It doesn't tolerate that kind of an article there with a proper noun. Ha is basically the. So for Hebrew, that is basically the, and you can't have the with a proper noun. The Satan is actually a title. It is a position. It is a position on the council, on God's heavenly court council known as the sons of God. You start seeing that throughout the Old Testament. The sons of God is God's council and Hasatan is known as the accuser. So, the Satan, basically, is how we would say it, is the accuser. And it's part of that council. And we see a great representation of this in Job. Let's take a look at Job, uh, actually, the beginning of Job, Job 1, verses 6 to 11. Let's go ahead and do that. Now, there was a day when the sons of God, that's the council, that is the council of God. This is an, you know, spirit beings, Elohim, different Elohim, not capital E Elohim, not God, God, right? But the sons of God is God's council, is heavenly court, comes together, came to the to present themselves before the Lord, so before God, and now in ESV it says Satan with a capital S, but there's a footnote there, and that footnote says Hasatan, in Hebrew, it's actually the Satan, the Satan, meaning the accuser. That's what this actually means. Satan, the title means the accuser. Okay. It's like a prosecutor. Okay. It would be somebody who is an accusing someone else. It's that position. So the Satan or the Satan also came among them, part of the court that comes in. The Lord said to Satan, to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down it. That's his job, is to monitor people. This isn't him saying, I've just been flippantly doing whatever. No, he's basically giving a report. I have been going and doing what I'm supposed to do. I've been going around the earth, monitoring people, finding out whether people hold up to the standard of God. It's his job. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? Have you blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land? But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face, to your face. So basically, he challenges God. Now, if you go through and you know the story of Job, God can't really let that stand. He's been challenged in the court. Could He's God. Could he just say, you're, you're dead now and you're gone? Yeah, sure, he could have, but he doesn't. That's not how God operates. And so God turns around and he says, yeah, go for it. But just make sure he, he survives and you're going to see. Why? Because God... God is God. He's omniscient. He already knows. But he can't just have something like that be be challenged and have that be out there. So Satan, Hasatan is a position known as the accuser. It's what Satan means. The accuser on the council trying to go about and just do his job. Now, why then is this term changed and and shown as Satan as a proper noun in the New Testament and in the Christian faith going forward, and even slightly before that, why is this shifting to a proper noun and then placed on a single entity? And why do people take that as being here in Genesis 3 account? Michael Heiser has a great, well, he's written several really great books. In the Unseen Realm he has a, a great representation or a great example and, and explanation as to why this is. So I, I'm just going to read to you from The Unseen Realm here a little snippet. There's a really important piece in here that's highlighted on the screen. If you're not on the screen, you'll get there in a second. You can find this in The Unseen Realm by Heiser on page 57 for those of you bookworms who, who want to know exactly where this is at. The function of the office of the Satan is why later Jewish writings began to adopt it as a proper name for the serpent figure from Genesis 3 who brought ruin to Eden. That figure opposed God's choice for his human imagers. Here's the important part. The dark figure of Genesis 3 was eventually thought of as the mother of all adversaries. And so the label Satan or Satan got stuck to him it became a proper noun because this is the mother or the father whatever you want to say of all adversaries this is the beginning of adversaries against humanity being joined with god hence why this serpent became known as satan that is when this started to shift let's let's actually dig into this now now that we've spent what is that <laughs> 20 minutes about 20 minutes on just prep work of understanding the serpent. Who is the serpent? Who is this role? Because that is a big piece. That really is a very big piece in understanding this and going forward. How does this link in? Is this the devil? And, and is this the devil that we think of when we go forward? Which, by the way, demons and the devil, there's not horns and hooves and all this weird stuff. I mean, that's topic for another day. But that's not necessarily what, what we see throughout scripture and what we see in reality of what's going on with, with these. And here it is, you know, who is this serpent? Is this serpent the actual Satan, actual devil? Well, it became linked to this person as the mother of, or the father of lies and everything that gets linked in here. So that persona gets personified here. And this is where we begin to see that representation. All right. 1A because this, this actually breaks off here into a couple spots. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Right here, we're seeing a linking between the ending of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. So chapter 2, verse 25 and 3, 1a here. They're linked here by wordplay. The nakedness, adramum, is played off with the serpent being crafty, adram. Now, it's a wordplay technique. Their nakedness is a representation of their not knowing evil and the things outside of God's design and purpose. But notice that God's words here, this is something you're going to see here as we just move into the other half of, of verse one. God's words brings creation and life and order. The serpent's words brings chaos and destruction. But we're linking the creation of man and woman with the beginning of this story of the fall, the nakedness and that play of their being innocent and not knowing with now the craftiness of the serpent. It's a wordplay technique that we we completely don't see because the words just, they don't align at all in English. But in the original languages, they, they are there and it's a wordplay. 1B to 3. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So clearly God gave mankind language. They're communicating, okay? So we see from the very beginning, there's there's a basis of communication happening. And not only is there a basis of communication, there's a basis of communication that the council, therefore the Satan here, or this entity that is taking on the form of a serpent, of a snake, is able to communicate. Now, mind you, snakes did not talk, this isn't jungle book. Snakes did not talk, right? So, so this is again not zoology. This is not saying that serpents used to walk on feet and speak and they could communicate. This isn't Harry Potter. Eve is not a parcel tongue. She doesn't sit there and speak, speak snake talk to people, right? That's not, this isn't what this is what's happening here. You have an entity that is likely part of God's counsel who is now going against God, and I, and I would say likely on God's counsel because he's, he's in God's temple, right? If we were go back in the earlier studies, what is Eden? Eden is paradise. Eden is where God communicates and lives on earth when he's on earth. And when he does things here, it's also where his court would happen and where the council would come in. So not just anyone is going to come in and be where God is on earth. You have to be in a special position, right, for a, a king or a ruler to get somebody to come in to see the king or a ruler or God. And so the council is here and comes in and interacts. So likely this is a member of the council who, like mankind, has free will and has decided to go against God, is not happy with how God has made mankind special and wants to turn things for his own benefit. Okay? He's trying to become more like God himself, and so therefore he's trying to turn things and manipulate and cause problems. Well, there's already language. They're communicating with each other. Okay, So God creates and uses language to communicate, to build, to create order, to create life, to do these things. This entity is now using it to produce chaos and confusion. The serpent perverts the language here and brings confusion, and it's probably trying to bring humanity under his control to some degree. And as we see later in scripture, more or less actually wins that, you know, gets that. Two extra notes. Being a beast of the field meant that it, that if it had been an actual snake and not a divine being, it would have been subject to mankind. Okay, there's there's a little bit of play here, right? This would have been subject to mankind. Man was over. Man was God's representation to creation. So if it was an actual snake, the snake would have been under the order of man. Man would have been over the snake. But this is a divine being. What that means here is that temptation often comes from where it shouldn't. Also, another note here is pagans often worship snakes. And and thus, the author here may be making a point and indicating that the worship of snakes as a deity is not the path to the divine. It's not the path to God. It's not the path to righteousness, but rather it's the path to death. Okay, because remember, this is is happening and Moses is doing this as in between leaving Egypt and going towards the promised land, and he's talking to people about what's happening throughout Mesopotamia, happening with the different people groups that they're hitting there. Also, they spent a lot of time in Egypt. Egypt worshipped a lot of snake figures as well, so you, you get a lot of different plays going on there. So just just notice that there's multiple meanings of what's happening here. Hey, sip and studiers. As you may know, the family and I have been called into missions and are now officially missionaries to the church in Pakistan. Can't tell you how excited we are for this. It's a great opportunity and we are so blessed for it. But if you've known anybody who's gone into missions, you know, can't do it on our own. We need people to be partnered with us, partnered in prayer and yes, also in financial support. But there's so much more. If you feel God tugging at your heart, letting you know that he has a plan for you to make an impact in the church in Pakistan, we'd love for you to reach out to us and partner with us. You can do that and more at chogglobal.org slash dsbrown. That's chogglobal.org slash dsbrown, as in Drew and Sonny Brown. Now, back to the study. Now, the serpent does twist things by shifting the focus off of God's provision. Notice how he does this. You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Oh, no, no, no. we We can eat of the, the fruit of the trees in the garden, but we just should, we shouldn't eat of the, the fruit tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall we touch it lest you die. So he shifts the focus off of God's provision to the single limitation, right? God, God only said, just don't eat that one thing one limitation, and he focuses on the, well, why shouldn't you do that, rather than the abundance and the overabundance of what God is providing and what the provision of God is. Now, Eve falls for this, but not only does she fall for it, she almost doubles down on it, and she adds to the prohibition God just says, if we look earlier, let's, look, let's take a look. Chapter two, verses 16 and 17. God says this, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Now notice that, you may surely eat. Not just you can eat, but you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But what does Eve say? Eve says, you shall not eat of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. According to the earlier account, God didn't say you can't touch it. He just says you can't eat of it because after that, you're, you're surely going to die. Four to seven. But the serpent, serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil, pause, like God. That's an interesting statement. But you're going to be like God, knowing good and evil, which by the way, that's exactly what God says in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. He calls this in 17, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We know it's the tree that brings knowledge of good and evil, but that's a separation point between man and God and the other Elohim, those who are created before. God made man innocent. We would use the term probably naive today. Mankind was different. They didn't know right from wrong. God hadn't set up anything other than there's one thing. Just don't eat that one thing. And and everything in your life is going to be beautiful and perfect, exactly how it was always meant to be. But the nature of man doesn't allow for that. Keep going. Verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, one, good for food, and the tree was a delight to the eyes, it looked nice, and that the tree was desire to make one wise. Stop. It's no longer just the knowledge of good and evil. Why would that matter? What is good and evil? Who I don't know. Oh, but it's going to make us wise. It's going to make us more like God. Ah, now we're shifting things. It's shifted just enough that it's going to make her wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. Should have said no, but who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. They were wise. They understood. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So they just cover their nether regions with some fig leaves. Okay. So the serpent then directly lies, changes this, rather than just shifting it. Okay. "Eh, eh, Did God really say? Now he's completely Lying, just straight up bold faced, denouncing the penalty of death for sin. That hadn't been there yet. Well, what's the penalty? Well, that's why you die. It's not because it's poison. Okay. The knowledge isn't just poison, but it's going against God. And once you do that, you're out of his good graces and you're surely going to die. The penalty for sin is death. And so he completely denounces God's penalty. For that, he shifts the conversation to God wanting them to be different and less than. Okay, so he's denied that, and then he shifts that conversation, saying God actually wants you to be different, less than them. God knows, it was verse 5, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God. God just wants you to be different. He wants you to be less than. He doesn't want you to be your fullest Doesn't that sound like modern day? Like, don't we hear that all the time? God doesn't want the best for you. He doesn't want you to have a full life. He wants to tell you all the things you can't do. No, the penalty here is death. God wants you to have the full life. That's the lie of the enemy. That's the normal lie. After this, the serpent seems to leave the scene. Whether the serpent's still there or not, we don't know. But the interaction between the serpent and them is, is not there anymore but he leaves Eve to her natural desires. Oh, it's it's good for eating. I can eat this. This looks tasty. It was pretty, but <laughs> I guess, you know, whatever. I don't know why that plays a part in it, but it's there. So it's in the scripture. So it's there. And it would make you wise. Ah, that having the knowledge of good and evil, that's a good thing. That's going to help me have a leg up. Man, I want a leg up. Great. The result of them eating it, Well, it's anticlimactic. Their eyes are opened, but they're not made divine. They didn't instantly become like God. What's the instant happening? Shame. They weren't brought closer to God. They were brought further from God and further from their design. The instant reality of this is shame. In the contrast of 225, of going back to the end of this, uh, of the last chapter, when they were made, they were naked and they were not ashamed. All of a sudden it shifts and their instant reaction is shame. Disobedience to God never brings wisdom. But we see in Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. God's wisdom and instruction was don't eat this. The enemy's discussion was, nah, you're not going to die. It's going to make you like God. And it brought destruction. Let's look at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. A couple things here. They heard the sound. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. Well, the Hebrew here, kol, is an it just means noise, it's like a loud noise, but it usually indicates voice, the voice of God. They heard the voice of God, but it can also mean the rushing wind, you know, a rushing wind. They either heard God talking or they heard God in wind. Was it thunder? Was it wind? Was this God speaking? Adam, where are you? Or Adam, where are you? Was it God's footsteps in the brush? We, we don't really know. We don't really know. All we know is they, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. He's there and he's moving and they hear it. Take a look at First Kings 19, 11 to 13. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before God or before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and the great strong wind tore the mountains and broke it in pieces and rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind. An earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? We can also take a look here at Job 37. Job 37.4 says this. After it, his voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice, and he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God's voice brings change in the environment. And so if it's God speaking, chances are there's thunder, there's lightning, there's things happening because because he is above and beyond this. Now, in the perfection of the garden where he's doing council biddings and things of that, is it like that? I, I don't know. I wasn't there. I wasn't there. Now, the cool of the day, cool here literally means, in, in the Hebrew text, it means breath or wind or spirit. So it, it means wind, but it's the same term used for the breath of God and the spirit of God. So in they heard the sound, which can actually mean and, and often means rushing wind, of the Lord God walking in the garden in the breeze, in the wind, in the breeze of the day. So it's moving around, most likely there's wind and rustling and things happening, and they're hearing God there. Now, why Why am I saying that? Because it's, it's, it is the key points, it is the piece that's inside of this verse. God is inside there, going, and the breath of life is moving, the breath, the breeze, the movement there. God is there, and it's moving and circulating, and it's creating life and going around and doing these things. The, the word is still there, and that's what that word means. Now, they hid themselves, again, out of shame. The man and his wife hid themselves. They hear God, whether he's calling to them or whatever it is. They hear the wind moving throughout the garden because he's nearby. They hear him, and they hear him moving around in the garden with the breeze of God going through. And they were scared and ashamed, and they hid themselves from God. 9 to 13, but the Lord God called the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the, of the tree, and I ate. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So God now models justice. He shows us what is justice, and how does this operate, and what does this look like? How does this go about? He wants to know where. Where are you? Who? Who did this? And what? What Did you, did you eat of this? Where are you? Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat the fruit? Now, mind you, God is omniscient. He knows. And this is one of those mysteries of God to me. He knows. And as a parent, I mean, I guess we do the same thing every now and then. I know my child has done something and yet I still want to hear it. Like I want them to recognize and learn from what happened. And so you play coy a little bit (laughs) and you don't show all your cards and, you know, hey, so... What happened? Oh, oh, really, really? Ah, aren't you forgetting a, a key detail here? Mm-hmm. Right, like, you know, God sits here and he already knows. He knows what's going on. He knows what's happening. He knows that it has. And who has? And what has? He knows all of this. And yet he gives them the opportunity to share, to discuss. He already knows, but he asks the questions that he already knows the answers to, and he lets them discuss and show their nature. They're his creation. He loves them, and so he wants to give them that opportunity to discuss and to share and show their points and to do these things. It's not necessarily for his benefit. It's for ours, and it was for theirs. Now, what we see here is that the man shifts the blame. Oh, it was the woman that you gave me. She, she gave it to me and had me do it. Oh. He's basically saying... This gift that you gave me was not good. You gave me a faulty gift. And then God says, what did you do? What have you done? And she says, I was lied to by the serpent. She shifts the blame. Yeah, well, the the serpent told me. So she shifts the blame. "I, I trusted what was created over you who did the creating. I I thought it was a snake. Now, by by the way, even though they are the first people, even though they're what we would consider naive, don't you think they understood that? Hey, no other snake has ever spoken to me before. The other animals aren't talking to me. This is weird. Don't you think that would be kind of an indication here? Like, I, I, they, they know early man was not stupid. Like we, we kind of sit there and want to, want to put that in our mindset of like, Hey, Hey, we are modern man. We, we have science. We have all of these things. We are more in touch with ourselves now because postmodern, we are beyond the modern of just looking at science. And now it's more about emotional feelings and being in touch with your insides. They weren't stupid. You know, it's easy to look back and be like, ah, oh, they didn't have Google. They couldn't Google that. They didn't have chat. What is it? Chat GBT, whatever it is. They couldn't have the artificial intelligence tell them what this was. They had no idea. They weren't stupid. They understood, hey, by the way, snakes don't talk. They had a good understanding. This is beyond natural, what we would call supernatural. This is a supernatural event. This is beyond the norm. But we're still trusting this creature over the word of God. And that's what's really going on here. And that's what this boils down to. They trusted the word of another creature, another entity, over the word of God. Now, if God created all and everything, this entity was a creation of God. We are, they are trusting created over creator. That's the issue. Also, what we see here is they are obsessed with I. With me. They follow the example of the serpent by twisting the realities. Take a look at what they say here. The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. Me. You gave her to me for me, and she did this to me. I'm a victim. And the woman says, Well, I try I, I trusted the serpent. The serpent deceived me and I didn't I didn't know any better. I'm a victim. That's what we get here. The woman turns around and says, I'm a victim. The man says, I'm a victim. Woman says, I'm a victim. I'm a victim because I listened to my wife. I'm a victim because I listened to the serpent. The problem here is they're not victims. Were they deceived? Sure, absolutely. But the problem here is they trusted someone other than God. They had one command here. They had one thing not to do. You can have everything. I've provided everything for you. Your life is full and beautiful. You can do, be my my image bearers here amongst creation. Just don't eat the fruit on this one tree. Everything else is yours. But I just want to make sure because you have to have an opportunity to go against if it's going to be authentic relationship, right? You have to have that opportunity. So just here it is, just this one thing. Just don't do that one thing. Don't eat that one tree. You have everything else. I've given you everything else. It's here. But they choose to trust the created over the creator. And then they twist and blur the realities. The reality is, God, I, I didn't believe you. I believe someone else or something else. That's the issue here. Let's take a look at James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. This this wasn't God tempting them. Oh, well, like, obviously, it was a test. God was just trying to test them, right? No, I don't think so. God doesn't test people. Not like this. No, he doesn't tempt people like that. He doesn't tempt you to do evil. He doesn't tempt you to do that. He has the opportunity there because that's requirement for there to be a real relationship. That's why people say, if you love something, let it go. You can't force it to stay. You can't force your spouse to stay if it's authentic love. You're, they're a captive at that point. If you give them the opportunity, if you open up and you say, hey, I love you, and this is a trust trust relationship, and that's what God says. You are my creation, and I love you, and I respect you, and so I'm going to give you all of this stuff, and I'm going to do it. and All I just ask is just this one thing, because there has to be an opportunity for a wrong." for it to be authentic. Let's keep going. 14 to 15. So here we go. We're shifting here. God's, the the serpents intervened, created issues, deceived. They ate the fruit. They were shameful. They heard God coming. They hid from God. God knows what's happened and he's coming through and he still wants to hear them out. What happened? What's going on? I want to hear your take on it. God already knows their take on it, but he wants to hear it anyway. He wants to give them the opportunity. And they shift the blame, and they shift the blame, and they still aren't, still not putting out there the actual truth of what's happening and the core issue of what's going on. So now God turns around and starts saying the punishment and talking about what's going on now. And he starts with the original deceiver, the serpent. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So the Lord places the serpent and serpent snakes as a reminder to humanity of sin and temptation. Okay, because remember, this isn't zoology. He's not talking about this, uh, this regular, real, authentic snake tempted them, learned to speak, and tempted mankind. No, no, no. This is God is now presenting and, and saying, like a rainbow, right? The rainbow for the flood. I will not ever flood the earth again. The rainbow is a reminder. The snake is a reminder of temptation and sin and going against God. This is not a representation of saying, I'm taking legs from serpents from now on. And now you're going to, you know, sniff the the dirt. That's the tongue coming out. You're going to eat the dirt and, you know, all this. No, 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 no. He's saying, this is just a representation. The serpent is a representation and this is the curse. Now there's actual notes here about the actual spiritual being. And we also see points towards the Messiah. Okay. This is a sign to remember snakes as a general now are here for us as a reminder of temptation and for sin and how we should avoid temptation and sin and follow God. But the discussion here is also of the supernatural and how forces behind that snake, that serpent, the spirit behind the deception and how that spirit and those who follow that spirit including humankind and I say that because let's take a look at John 8:44 you are of your father the devil And your will is to the father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Okay, so you get this deception here. It includes people going with that deception. So he's talking about how that spirit and all that would follow that spirit would be perpetually at odds with those who follow God. And we also see the first indication in the first discussion of the Messiah, the one who's going to come to correct this. He shall bruise your head. Another translation say he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. Saying, yeah, you're going to hurt him. You're going to go for it and you're going to try and you're going to do this stuff. But all you're going to do is bruise his heel and he is going to crush your head. You have brought death and destruction. You have brought death and chaos to my creation. You have taken things out of order. You're not going to win. All you've done is bruise the heel. He is going to crush your head. You will lose. It's God saying you will lose, which is interesting that God allows things like that. But that's the reality of how things operate is how God operates is how it is. It's how it's meant to be. Not saying that sin was meant to be in the world. I'm saying that goes against God's creation. But that's how God means to work through that, to solve things. He fixes the problem. He doesn't just eliminate the problem because he loves his creation. He loves how he created it. Now we get to the woman. Verse 16 says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, in pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, if you're looking at this in different translations, your translation might say this a bit differently. We'll get there. Childbearing. The Hebrew here, haron, can actually mean the entirety of pregnancy, all the way from conception to birth. It is not necessarily, because when we when we read this childbearing, at least what comes to mind for me is birth multiply your pain in childbearing. I helped deliver Gabby. And I was there when Josh was born. Hey, it is uh, well, thank God for epidurals, but you know, it, 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 it appears to be a rather painful experience. I'm a guy I've never had to go through that. Contrary to modern belief, men can't go through that. So, Hey, I don't know that pain. But to me, when I hear childbearing and multiply pain and childbearing instantly, it's, oh, that's the birth process. However, the word here means the entirety of the process. Think morning sickness. Think struggles going through some of these things and the changes that your body is going to go through. Some of these extra pieces that are involved. This is actually, it's all included inside of this. When I said that your translation may say part of this difference, the second half here. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, some translations actually have this as your desire desire shall be towards your husband. Now, that's a bit of a difference here. Your desire shall be towards your husband versus your desire shall be contrary to your husband. One seems to indicate you're going to want your husband really bad and your husband's just going to be in control. That doesn't seem to make any a lot of sense, right? But when you look at the context of uh, going forward at four seven, you can look that up yourself. We're running out of time, but if you go forward at chapter four verse seven, linking these contexts, it seems to indicate that the in, the ESV actually does have a really really good translation here, and and probably a more accurate translation as to what's going on here. Especially if you look at, through how things are taken through the, the Septuagint, you get into this. Your desire really is most likely going to be contrary to your husband. You're not going to want the same things that your husband wants, which, by the way, is pretty accurate. Think about that. We're designed and we're wired differently. We look at the world in very different ways, men and women. We are meant to complement each other. We're our other half for a reason. Typically, one of us is very emotional. Maybe more emotion-driven than the other, and the other is more logic and just numbers-oriented. And just now we're that we got to look at the bigger picture. We got to look at some of this other stuff. But as like when even talking with Gabby here this week, things some things have to be taken care of today because it's it's important. You know, short-term things actually matter. Medium-term things actually matter. Long-term things actually matter. And some of us focus more heavily on one or the other. I have a tendency to look more medium and long-term, and I lose sight of the short-term sometimes. Sunny is much better at looking at the short-term and seeing the issues at hand and how we can have some problems right now. And we work really well as a team to handle the entirety because we need each other. She struggled on long-term issues. I struggled on short-term issues. We come together and we help each other out with that. That's how that's meant to be. But that does create issues. Some people are going to take this, and some people do take this, as God putting things back in order, okay? Woman came from man as man's helpmate. Man was in charge. Some people take this as there's an extra emphasis added here. You were meant to be partners in this, working together in unity, and things were a little bit more in unison because you came from each other. Right, The woman came from the man, and so you you would work a little bit more naturally together. But now, because of this, and because you were the one that pulled astray and then got the other to do this, now your husband's the one who's in charge and in control. And when things go back and forth and you sit there and say, which is right, it's the man who has the, uh, the final authority and the final say. You, which is it? It could be in either one. People just kind of have their stance and everybody just kind of like, uh, that's that's an uncomfortable topic. (laughs) So we're just going to kind of avoid it. Men don't lord over women. Like it it has been an issue for all of humanity's sake. But we we take a look here at some of the New Testament pieces of this, like Ephesians 5.22. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Keynote here, as to the Lord. As to the Lord. Okay. Don't just submit straight, but just submit as to the Lord. Take him as the head of the household. But then we also see, you follow that up right after is, men, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's a sacrificial love. Put down your life, put down your wants and your desires for your wife. It is a balance. It brings back balance. Okay, we take a look at Galatians 3.28. There's neither Greek nor Jew. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That is not something about marriage and relationships in that accord. That is being brought into the body of Christ, okay? When you are brought in and adopted, we are all adopted as heirs, as son heirs, style-wise, right? We We are the bride. He is the bridegroom. So make sure that we are in order there. Like we look towards Jesus as the top head he is above us as a whole but when we look at each other throughout we aren't to put each other down or anything like that because there's there's neither there's neither greek nor jew there is neither slave nor free and inside the body of christ there is no male or female we're not to worry about that stuff it's an even playing field when we get to that 17 to 19 And to Adam, which is Adam, which literally means man, he said, "'Because you have listened to the voice of your wife "'and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, "'you shall not eat it. "'Cursed is the ground because of you. "'In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. "'Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. "'And you shall eat of the plants of the field. "'By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread "'till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken.' For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Because you have listened, man followed creation rather than creator. It goes back to that. Okay, remember when we looked back at what was going on and they were making excuses. Oh, the gift you gave me, I listened, you know, it was it was a bad gift. She deceived me. Oh no, no, no the serpent deceived me. The problem here was again: you listen to create head rather than creator. That's the root issue here. You followed created, not creator. We don't know if Eve convinced Adam before or after eating the fruit. We just saw he was there. She gave it to him and he ate. Okay. She could have convinced him after he ate it. Said, see, I didn't die. Oh, okay. I guess I'll eat it then too. Maybe they were on it at the same time. We don't know. We're not given that in the text. The point here would actually be the same regardless if Adam had listened directly to the serpent, instead of following God, followed the serpent. Follow God, the creator, not the created. Okay, move on here. The ground is cursed. All of creation now suffers. While provision is still there, mind you, notice that. Provision is still there, but you got to earn it. You got to work for it. You got to make it happen. God doesn't say you no longer get any of creation. Create on your own. No. He says it's still there, but the earth and the ground is now cursed because of you and because of what you've done. You are going to still eat, but you're going to eat in pain for all the days of your life. You cross 30, you're going to understand that, right? You know, ugh, pain, my back, my knees, uh curse you're gonna to have to work and toil to maintain the ground and everything that was just simply there before now you've got to make happen it's still there but you've got to tend it you've got to work it you've got to do more it is more than what it was before man already had work right remember go back go back to that study work was already there but the work was representing God it wasn't necessarily just straight up toiling the ground and making making it happen could that be part of it perhaps? I don't necessarily think so, but perhaps, but now that is definitely there and it is there to an extreme. Like it is hard work. Verse 18, we see thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. Okay, so now there's thorns and thistles. Things are now going to be outside of order before there was patches of good, this stuff over here, patches of that stuff over there. Now, it's all going to start to intermix, and you're going to get stuff where you don't want it to be, and it's going to make it harder for you. The natural order, okay, the natural order has now shifted. The natural order of man ruling over the ground has been reversed. Now, you have to work and do everything to the ground, for the ground, so that it can serve you. The ground now, to some degree, owns man and will eventually swallow man up. And I say that because, let's take a look, you shall return by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. What they believed would make them like God and make them better actually brought destruction and chaos back to the dust from which they were formed. They're no longer Getting more towards God, they they have moved further from God and have reintroduced chaos, or have introduced chaos, either which way you want to look at it. Now this is a section I want to spend a little bit of time in. I'm not going to spend a ton, but a little bit of time in. Like one of us, verses 20 to 24. Man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Stop there for a second. Even Hebrew. Although it directly translates as living or alive, it actually means life giver. Adam is giving her this name now. He now names. Remember, he says, I'm going to call her woman because she comes from man. Okay, great. But now he gives her a name and names her Eve. An interesting thing. Naming now, but okay. But there's a purpose for it. She's alive. She is the life giver because she is the mother of, of all living. Adam gives her this name as a sign of hope and in trusting God, moving back to trusting God. I was deceived. There's a consequence. The consequence is pretty extreme, but it's here. And it's honestly the natural consequence of it because God needs things to be perfect that are next to him, right? So here it is. But I am putting trust back in God. And he gives us as a sign, as a sign in trusting God. He is also reclaiming his job as God's representative in naming, right? And he is trusting God's word that her offspring will defeat the serpent. Okay, this is a sign of trust, a sign of obedience, and reclaiming that original calling of being God's representation to creation. 21, and the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin, and clothed them. Adam and Eve could not sufficiently cover their shame. Okay, they used fig leaves, remember? They just put together loincloths of fig leaves. But they couldn't sufficiently cover everything. But God could, and he did. Now, the text here implies, although it's not directly stated, it does imply that there was an actual sacrifice done. Because the skin here literally means the skin of either a human or an animal. It is the skin of a creature, of a living creature, is what that term means means. So the the text implies there was a sacrifice made to cover the shame of mankind, giving us an indication that there was an example set of sacrifice to cover these wrongdoings. 22, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Again, this becomes one of those interesting things. Some people want to say it's an obvious indication that there's the Trinity going on there. But why is God needing to talk to God? That doesn't make sense. We do not believe in multiple gods, plural. Okay. We believe in a God that is in three parts. There is one God. There is but one God. But we believe there are three elements to that one God there's the element of the Father, there's the element of the Son. And there is the element of the Holy Spirit, but they are all the same God. It is all part of one God. Why would God need to talk with other parts of himself? He doesn't. Now, Jesus prayed to show us indication and to show that connection because that was a separation point. You can't be 100% man and 100% God if you don't utilize the same means that it takes for a man to communicate with God. Okay, so Jesus prayed. He showed us that representation. The Holy Spirit stays in us as that communication to help guide us and to help speak for us on our behalf when we need it. Okay, it's how it goes. God doesn't have to physically talk to God, God knows. This is an indication that the council is there and God is discussing with the council. Behold, the man has now become like one of us in knowing good and evil. This has multiple major implications in one statement, multiple major implications in a single statement. First of all, man in perfect form, in the original created form prior to the fall, knew nothing apart from the goodness of God and the perfect nature of how he intended things to be. They did not know good or evil. They just knew God. They knew good. That's all they knew. They didn't understand the differences. Okay. Hence the the tree of knowing good and evil. Okay. We see this. This is a direct and major implication. That nature changed and shifted. God didn't want that for us. We weren't meant to be that way. Second, now that man does know the difference, he is subject to, separation from God and the goodness he intended for creation. That's why we are separate. Here it is. Now, mind you, that's all pretty common stuff. That that makes sense. We all should, whether we've been taught that, I think it's, it's an indication that we all kind of already know, okay? Because we we hear that a lot and that is a normal preaching point. We are separate from God because of the original sin. We That happened, great, we understand that. But there's a third part here. Man was special in this, and that bothered the council, or at least parts part of the council, that man was special in this way. And, in, and potentially all of corporeal creation was special in this way. At least man in human form, like in corporeal form, physical form, was special in this way. And the us here implies that at least the council of God If not all of the Elohim, the spirit entities, the other entities on the other plane, the other realm, they are aware of this distinction between good and evil. It was already there. They were aware of that. There is a possibility to go against God. Mankind didn't really think of this possibility of going against God until it was brought to their attention by the serpent, by the devil. This was not a new concept. To the spirit entities. Let's ponder that one for a little bit, because that, that brings up some major indications or inclinations, right? Major pieces. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat. Ah, an indication that maybe there actually was a separate tree and it wasn't di- another different tree. Okay. And live forever. Because that actually would be a punishment. It's something that we see as a desire of ours today It would actually be a punishment, a further punishment towards mankind living in perpetual separation from God like that on this plane. Not good. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. See, death is a punishment for sin. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But... The free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus our Lord. Punishment of sin is is death, but it's also a release. It's a release from the separation. It's a release from living in this world and on this plane that has been broken because of this, okay? God did not want man to live eternally separated from him here on earth. That was not the creation plan. That was not the the desire of God when he did this and when he made this. This form in this condition meaning in this broken condition is temporary now after this is done because god doesn't want them to live forever in this form in this broken form okay so after he sets that up god banishes man from his temple garden okay you you're not perfect anymore you can't be here okay this is for people who follow me completely you got to go and he places a protector and a throne class angel okay a cherub a cherubim is there's different Seraphim and, and cherubim, we've heard these, right? If you've been in the Bible much, you've probably heard these terms. They're classes of angels. Okay, these are kind of job descriptions and job titles, kind of like what we see with the satine, right? These are types. Cherubim are represented by in in Near Eastern societies, Near Eastern cultures. You'll see them. The sphinx is a representation of a cherubim. It usually has the body of a lion, wings, and oftentimes the face of a man. They're they're fire angels. They're, you know you see different types of representation for them but they are they are a class of angel it is kind of a job description type of an angel like this is an angel who was set forth as a throne room angel or a throne angel and a guardian angel who would protect God banishes them and pra- places a cherubim a protector class and a throne room angel there to protect as well as a flaming sword that turned every which way to guard the way to the tree. Of life now, what is that sword supposed to represent? That that was one. That's one I wish I I really knew because that's always interested me. Was the flaming sword seems like an interesting concept. But all right, takeaway. Let's wrap this up real fast. The serpent of this story, while while not directly called Satan or the devil, is who becomes considered the mother or father of all adversaries and is accepted as the serpent or the dragon in Revelation, okay? It links these together. The beginning and the end, it is considered linked together. Even though the story doesn't say, this is Satan, this is the devil, the end of the narrative links it together. This is who the mother of all adversaries is. This is where it all begins. The serpent brought doubt while slightly twisting God's word and command as to focus on the minute shall not rather than the abundant this is for you. This is what I have for you. This is all the great for you. And there was a single don't. Mankind has a natural desire to grow and become greater than. And this was used as a way to separate mankind from God by the serpent. And finally, because of sin, all of creation suffers. Order has shifted Pain and toil is increased. There is a need for restoration. God must intervene to correct the wrongs. And jump forward in the story. God does correct the wrongs. He does intervene in the way of Jesus Christ. Father God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your word, for this part of the story of your creation and the fall of man. God, I, while I wish we were still in in perfect form and that we could still be there in the garden, I thank you for correcting the wrongs with Jesus. I thank you for protecting us and providing for us. And we thank you for everything that you've given us and that you do for us. We ask that you give us strength to go about our week, to, to do the things that you're calling us to do, and that we can be the best representation of you possible, God. I ask that you open the doors and that you continue to provide. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, thank you guys so much. Hope you got something good out of it. We'll see you guys next time. God bless. Bye-bye.